Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. If you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel and chapter number 12. The book of 2 Samuel and chapter number 12. This morning we had hit the life and ministry of Solomon and we started from where he came from by how David and Solomon's mother had met. Unfortunately, it was not a good love story. It came a time in the midst of adultery. It came when that adultery could not be covered up and eventually that adultery and that covered up turned into the murder of one of David's mighty men. Now, we see the aftermath of this, that David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. She came expecting with child. Uriah is now dead. Afterwards, there was a mourning period where Bathsheba mourned, and then David and Bathsheba got married. And for a while, for a while, it seemed like David had gotten away with it. For a while, it seemed as if no one had noticed. For a while, it looked like there had been no consequences. But the Bible says, Be not deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There is a payday someday. And as we turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter number 12, we find where it is payday. It is now time for God to announce that God hasn't forgotten, he's observed, and now it is time for David to get right with God. Notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of 2 Samuel chapter number 12. The book of 2 Samuel in chapter number 12. Notice with me in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. And it did eat of his own meat, and drink of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come up unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for him, the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against that the man. And he said to Nathan, <clears throat> As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have moreover given unto thee <coughs> excuse me, such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord <clears throat> to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain with him the sword of the children of Ammon. 
Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and thou hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou did didst it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 2 Samuel in chapter number 12? Inside of the parable that Nathan the prophet had told David, notice with me in 2 Samuel chapter number 12, and notice with me number 4, there came a traveler. There came a traveler. And with the Lord's help, I'd like to preach a message about the traveler. The traveler. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you now, I'm just asking that you would give us grace and that you would give us mercy. That you would give us great understanding of this passage. And that you would help us with great application for our own selves because of this. Lord, I know how greatly you have used this message in the past. And I'm asking, Lord, that I wouldn't be a reason why it didn't work again. I wouldn't be a hindrance and I wouldn't be in the way so the best I know how. I surrender myself, my goals, my ambitions, my desires, what I want to get accomplished. I lay those at your feet. And that you just do your own work through your word that you would draw people close to you, that you would equip and protect, that you would help them prepare how to take care of things when the traveler comes. Lord, I'm asking again that you would put your Holy Spirit thick upon this place, that we would see you high, holy, and lifted up, and that we would respond correctly to you because of whom you are. Lord, once again, I beg that you put great power and that you help someone in here. That you would help multiple people, but maybe there's someone that's on the edge of sin. Maybe there's someone who's just almost too far out. Lord, I'm asking that you would rescue and bring them back to you. That they would see that you are a God who has made a way of escape. And that we would come running to you. And that we would determine that we would stay as right with you. And that you would help protect us even from ourselves. We love you in Jesus name. Amen. As David has been sitting for about eight, nine months. He has been miserable. Outwardly. He looks good. Outwardly, he's still doing all the duties. Outwardly, he's still the king. Outwardly, he's still working. But he is so miserable. Just waiting that any time he could be found out. At any time that his sin could be exposed. For all this time, he's been hiding this great secret. Every time he looks at Bathsheba, he's reminded of his sin. It's a big wait. But yet, he still has refused to get right. He has refused to go to God. He has refused to confess his sin. He has refused to get things corrected. And so God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to come and point his bony finger in the face of the king and to point out to him that thou art the man. When he comes, the very first thing he does is give the parable of the traveler. The parable of the traveler. Let's see this parable here. The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came to him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man 
had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished, and it grew together with him and with his children, and it did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own flock and of his, her, of his herd, own herd, and to dress it for the wayfaring man that was come to him. But he took of the poor man's lamb and dressed it for that man that was come to him. So Nathan the prophet comes up and he gives this parable. He gives this story. And as the story goes, there's two men. One's very, very rich. One's very, very poor. The rich man has herds to spare. He has plenty of of flock. He has plenty of sheep. He has plenty of cattle. He has plenty of everything. But this poor man has had a little ewe lamb. And this little lamb has grown up more than just a barnyard animal. This little ewe lamb has actually been raised in the house. It's become the family pet. And more than a family pet, it's almost as if it was one of the family. It's how attached the family was to this little sheep. This little lamb that was there. The kids loved to play with it. The kids loved to feed it. The, the lamb played with the kids. Then one day a traveler came. And as the traveler came, the rich man made a choice. The rich man could have taken his flock of his excess, of his abundance. But instead he went and took this family pet, this fam part of the family, this little lamb. And he took it away from the family and that's all they had. And he took it and he sacrificed it and gave it to the traveler. Well, when David hears this, he is not happy. Now, there's something to this that when someone's engaged in sin, they automatically, because they hate the sin they're engaged in, hate the sin that everyone else is engaged in. For example, liars hate other liars. Thieves hate other thieves. It just that sin becomes very noxious. And because they're convicted of it, they're more highly sensitive to that sin. And so when David hears this, he's pricked in the heart. Again, he's been building up with this for the last nine months. And this sin that has been engaged, it's now bearing on him. And when he hears this parable, David snaps. Notice what David does in verse number five. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he had done this thing, and because he had no pity. Now David's convicted of himself. And because he's convicted, now he's responding to that conviction, pouring it out on what he thinks is someone else. And so when he hears this story, that man is awful. That man is wicked. That man should have done this. That man deserves to die. And not only deserves to die, he needs to repay that, that poor man four times over. So instead of just taking one lamb, he needs to get back four lambs. Well, at this time, David is angry, thinks he's taking the righteous course. Then that's when Nathan takes his bony finger and points in front of David. Verse number 7, and David said, or Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Imagine, Nathan never touched David, but with every point of that finger, it was like stabbing him in the heart. It's you. It's you, David. You, God had blessed you. And he goes on and Nathan gives the message that God had protected David. That God had given David the kingdom. Remember, David didn't lift a single finger to become king. God gave it to him. David didn't have to fight for it. Now, he did have to run. But he didn't do anything for the kingdom. God gave it to him. God had blessed them. And God was willing to give David whatever he wanted. All he had to do was ask. But then David saw a girl that was not his. And he wanted her. And he committed adultery. And when it found out that his sin was getting close to being discovered. He killed Uriah. And now God is not happy. Now 
God allowed David to pronounce his own judgment. Just as a little asterisk. God does that quite often in the scriptures. Where he'll allow someone to go ahead and talk. And their talking will end up being their judgment. They will list what their judgment is. Be very, very careful about what you say. David said, that man shall surely die. All right, David. And that man shall pay back fourfold. Okay, David. So the message is delivered to David that you are the man. God had done everything he did. God, uh, <coughs> David had tried to hide it and try to put things away. Notice what God says about this in verse number 9. Wherefore thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in the sight. Notice that word despised. There's several times in the Bible, Ezekiel is a good place to look for it, where this despised, this word despised, which is an emotion, it carries the idea to hate, to look upon with disgust. In order to disobey God's commandment, you first of all have to despise it. You have to look at it and say, that is not for me. That is disgusting. I don't want it. I don't like it. I'm not going to obey it. You have to have an emotional response to God's word to disobey it. There's no such thing as a neutral disobedience of God's word. There is an emotional attachment to it. God says, wherefore thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord. To do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And taken his wife to be thy wife. And have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now again, God is exposing it all to David. David knows that he had messed up. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house. Because thou hast despised me. Notice in verse 9, it says, Thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord. Verse number 10, Thou hast despised me. Once again, God ties his character to his word. That when you despise God's word, you are despising him because he is the one who gave the word. That is his words. This is a very big deal. We're starting to see how awful sin really is. Sin is extremely, exceedingly awful. And when we sin, we have to despise his word. And when we sin, it's because we currently at that time despise God. You will not rule over me. I determine what is right. I determine what to do. So, because of this... Because thou hast despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. That means you're going to have trouble within your own home. And I will take thy wives before thee. Now verse 13, after all of this, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That was what God was working for in the first place. Is to finally get David to confess and to get things right. David said I, to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Now God is showing mercy. Remember, David's the one that pronounced judgment. The man who did this, he deserves to die. And God says, yes, you deserve to die. But I'm going to forgive you and I'm not going to kill you. However, there are still consequences. Howbeit by this deed thou was given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. God says, listen, what you did is a big deal. Remember, everyone at this time has been cheering David. That's the man after God's own heart. That's the man that's close to God. That's the sweetest psalmist in all of Israel. That's the man that you need to look to to give an example of how to live a life close to God. And now that David has done this, the enemies that hate God, the enemies that hate God's word, they're all looking, oh, that's the guy you're supposed to follow. Oh, that's what you're supposed to live like, huh? Th so we all should go commit adultery? We should all go murder? I thought your God was real. That's not how believers behave. And it is given a great accusation. It is given ammunition to God's enemies. And there are plenty of God's enemies that are always looking for a believer to fall. And now David has given it to them. 
David has just handed it to them. And God says there's still consequences for this. Because of this, the child that is born to thee shall surely die. Now remember, David had pronounced his own judgment. He said, the man that does this, he should die. And he should repay the lamb fourfold. Well, because David had taken Bathsheba and killed Uriah, that fourfold judgment is going to come out in David's family. And you're going to watch four of his children die. The first one is this little infant, the, the one that's about to, ready to be born between David and Bathsheba. That child will perish. Followed by that, you're going to have David's son, Amnon, who decides to rape his sister, and because of that, he is killed. After that, Absalom, who was the one who killed Amnon, he gathers together a rebellion and tries to overthrow David's kingdom. And he is killed. Followed by another son by the name of Adonijah, who tried to bypass God's will and tried to take the throne from Solomon. And he perished. A fourfold judgment that falls. We'll speak more about this in detail on Wednesday night. But there's a fourfold judgment because of this. Now, David does get right with God. And the prompting of this, uh, because of this, David wrote Psalm 51. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That is a psalm that taught his, his repentance psalm. It's the psalm where David is getting right with God. Getting thoroughly right with God. He's against thee and thee only have I sinned against thee. He's confessing his sin. He's recognizing that he has done wrong. You know, as we study the psalms, we know that there's at least 74 psalms that are attributed to David. And David, as far as we could tell, began to write psalms when he was about a teenager and had wrote them until his death. And as far as we get, can guess and calculate, he's written about one and a half to two psalms every year of his life. But not this year. This year, David wrote no psalms. This year, because David is so far away... He didn't have any praise for God. Because he wasn't right with God, his worship has now become cold, lifeless. His worship has now become routine. Oh, he's the king. He still has to show up to the services. He still has to do these things. He still has to be there and figurehead. But the whole time, he is so far away from God. So distant. He had to get things right to finally be able to sing praises to God again. He had to get things right to stop faking it when he was there at services. He had to get things right in order for his prayer life to get back to where it should. All of this because of the traveler. Let's look at this parable again. And this is going to be interesting. What is the identity of the traveler? Now, in New Testament parables, there is a difference between New Testament parables and Old Testament parables. In New Testament parables, um, every little thing doesn't have to mean something. For New Testament parables, there's one main meaning that is meant to cross it. That's why the Pharisees would look at Jesus and say, nobody's taught like this man's taught. He teaches differently. That... For the Old Testament parables, every single part had a meaning. Every single part of a parable had significance. So, there's a difference. A New Testament parable, not every little thing has to mean something. Sometimes it's just getting across one main point. However, in Old Testament parables, they meant Every little part had a meaning, had a significance. So if you don't mind, let's look at the four people that's in this parable. You had the rich man. The rich man was easily identified as David. You had the poor man who was identified clearly as Uriah the Hittite. You had the ewe lamb which was identified as Bathsheba. But you have this fourth person. Notice again in this parable in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Notice with me in verse number 4. And there came a traveler. 
unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man. This is that traveler that was come unto him. But took of the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Three times in verse number four, this traveler is made mention. The traveler, the wayfaring man, and the man that was come to him. So again, I had said that in Old Testament parables, everything had a meaning. Every person, every object had a significant thing. So who is the traveler? You understand that this traveler is going to be the key to unlocking this parable here. The identification of the traveler. Who is this traveler? Who is this traveler that when he came caused this rich man to take from someone else? Who is this traveler when he came to David's life that David not only took Bathsheba but killed Uriah the Hittite? Who is this traveler? This is important because this traveler is someone we have to deal with as well. Who is this traveler? The traveler is identified as temptation. Temptation. Temptation visited David and David set out to serve. Now temptation is not something that just happens to kings. Temptation is not something that just happens to preachers. Temptation is something that each and every one of us must face. So now, here comes the real message. How to withstand temptation. Every single one of us have to face temptation. How practically, realistically, do we avoid temptation? How do we keep from temptation, from conquering us? How do we keep from us serving temptation and wrecking our lives? If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to show you several Bible principles to be a help, something practical about how to withstand temptation. The very first thing is preventative maintenance. Preventative maintenance. If we want to uh, keep ourselves from temptation, there starts with some preventative maintenance. There are things that we do to keep ourselves and protect ourselves from temptation. To protect ourselves so when temptation comes, we're able to withstand it. Preventative maintenance. There's a couple things under here. First of all, watch and pray. Watch and pray. We're going to turn this into a Bible study and let's look at several passages as we go through this list. And let's see for ourselves, so you could see the scriptures. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the gospel record of Matthew 26. The gospel record of Matthew in chapter 26. The very first thing of preventative maintenance is to watch and to pray. To watch and to pray. Lord, help even now. Watch and to pray. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in the gospel record of Matthew in chapter 26. This is the setting of the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus Christ is preparing to go to the cross. And as he's going to the cross, his pit stop is in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray with his disciples and pray in preparation for the day to come. Now, in this time, Jesus is praying and he knows that he is going to be tempted. What is he going to be tempted? Well, he's going to be killed in a couple of hours. Nobody wants to be killed, especially the manner that Jesus is going to be killed. But not only that, the disciples do not understand that the most significant event is going to happen in just a matter of hours. And they are not prepared. They're tired, they're weary, it's in the middle of the night. Notice what Jesus Christ says to them and the gospel record of Matthew 26. For context's sake, notice with me in verse 40. And he, Jesus, cometh to the disciples and findeth them sleep, asleep. And saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus Christ is talking to them. Notice what he says. Watch and pray. Why? That ye enter not in temptation. Then notice as he explains. The spirit indeed is willing, 
but the flesh is weak. Jesus knows our frame. And he knows that we may want to do what's right, but isn't it like us that we keep slipping up? We keep failing? We keep messing up? What did Jesus say to do to keep that from happening? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. What this carries the idea of is that you need to work daily on your personal walk with God. On your personal fellowship with God. Be in prayer. Be in your Bible reading. Be faithful to the house of God. Be tithing. Go soul winning. Work on your daily walk. And as you work on your daily walk, you'll be strengthened enough for when temptation comes that your flesh will not be stronger than your spirit when those times happen. It is practical, but it deals with our own walk with God. Before someone ever has a public fall, it starts with a private failing. Before any preacher decides to run away with his secretary, there was already something wrong in his Bible reading, in his own prayer life. For someone to avoid temptation, you need to be in the Bible for yourself. It is preventative maintenance. It's why the greatest thing you could do on a daily basis is to be in the Word of God for yourself. Watch and pray. Because your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. And whichever one you've been feeding the most is going to be strongest inside of that place of temptation. The book of 2 Chronicles 12, 14, I'll just read it for you, says, he did, and he did evil. Why? Because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Here as it's talking about Saul. King Saul failed. Where did he fail at? Because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. He didn't prepare his heart to avoid temptation. This idea of preventative maintenance starts with watch and pray. Keep your own walk with God strong. So when you come to those times of temptation, you can be able to withstand it. As we still deal with preventative maintenance, there's something else. Memorize scripture. Memorize scripture. I'll give you the verse. We've hit it quite a bit in the last several months. Psalm 119 verse 11. Psalm 119 verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Again, this is preventative maintenance. You will be surprised that the more scripture you memorize, that when you come to a time of temptation, God will bring those verses back up. He'll bring it as a stop sign. He'll bring it back up to warn us. But we have to do the work beforehand of memorizing Scripture. You have to put it inside of you. You have to take the time to work on it. And by the way, it doesn't take much to memorize Scripture. Ten minutes a day and you could get a lot of verses in. It doesn't take much. You just have to work on it. But that is preventative maintenance. You're hiding it in your heart that you might not sin against thee. There's a third item under this preventative maintenance. And that's don't put yourself into a tempting situation. Don't put yourself in a tempt tempting situation. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22. Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lust. That idea flee means to run away. Stay away. That's just protective. If you understand that you can't walk upon the magazine rack in the grocery store without being bothered. Don't do it. Find some other way. If you are tempted by liquor, don't go walking right next to the bar. It's just preventative maintenance. That's just a practicality. You know your flesh. You know what you're tempted on. Stay away from it. If, if you were watching stuff on the internet, stay away from the internet. There's a practicality that's preventative maintenance. That's to keep you prepared and taken care of from temptation. But then when temptation comes, let's hit these other things. Not only preventative maintenance, but recognize temptation for what it is. Recognize temptation for what it is. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of James. The book of James. 
If you're looking for the book of James, the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. Turn the other direction. Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 2 Peter, 1 Peter, James, and then the book of Hebrews. The book of James. That as we are looking for ways to protect ourselves from temptation, we know that it starts with preventative maintenance. But when temptation actually shows up, the next thing is to recognize temptation for what it is. Recognize temptation for what it is. Notice with me in the book of James chapter 1. The book of James chapter 1, and notice with me in verse 14. The book of James chapter 1 and verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So notice this. Here's the, the idea of temptation. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. This carries the idea that temptation begins in your mind. You start by thinking about it. And as you think about it more, you will eventually act on it. Nobody goes to commit adultery without thinking about adultery beforehand. There's an idea here is that you think about it and you think about it and you think about it and you think about it until you finally act on it. And then the result of it is going to be death. The problem is, is that in the moment of temptation, we might not first recognize what it is. This is why preventative maintenance is so important. And preventative maintenance is going to help you out. So when you finally get here, you recognize for what it is. Now we understand, maybe I, we're going to stick with the idea of pornography and adultery, but you apply it to the other thing. That before someone starts watching it, they want to watch it. They're thinking about it. And as they think about it some more, they finally go commit the act. It starts with their thinking. It mulls over and over and over. That's the time to recognize it for what it is. Wait, wait, stop. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have these thoughts. I shouldn't up there. I need to take care of it. And there's a way to take care of it. But you have to start by recognizing what it is. This is temptation. It's going to lead me to death. It's going to bring consequences. It's going to bring forth sin. And the sin is going to bring forth death. I need to be careful. I don't need to step this way. I need to recognize for what it is. Recognize temptation for what it is. Here's a third thing here. Not only preventative maintenance, not only recognize temptation for what it is, but probably once you recognize for what it is, what you need to do immediately, ask God for help. Ask God for help. Turn with me, if you wouldn't mind, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And may I show you probably the most abused verse in all of the Bible. This verse is so misused, so misquoted, so beat up and harassed that it actually hurts people because of the way that they misquote it. Notice with me in the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter number 10. Now we're talking about this thing that we're supposed to ask God for help. That you've done the preventative maintenance. Now when temptation enters, you recognize it for what it is. And by the way, that's hard because temptation would be temptation if it's not something you already wanted to do. No, this is temptation. I know that I may want this. My flesh craves it, but this is temptation. Then ask God for help. Notice with me 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. There hath no temptation, so that's what we're speaking about. There is no temptation taken to you, but as such is common to man. But God is faithful. Before it even talks about the rest of the verse, it starts here. God is faithful. You could trust God. You're going to run in temptation. That's what it's talking about. There's not a single one of you who's immune from temptation. Every single one of you are going to face this. But when you're getting ready to face this, let me tell you right away, God is faithful. 
you can trust him. Now notice the rest of this verse, which is so misabused. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that what you are able? Notice that is not a period after that able. But people put a period here. And this is what people end up doing. People say, listen, God won't give me more than I can handle. God won't give me more than I can handle. God won't give me more than I can handle. What that leads to is a dependence on the flesh. Dependence on how great I am. And that's what God is trying to tell you. No, you can't trust your flesh. The spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You are not man enough to endure this. You are not woman enough to endure this. You can't do this. But God won't give me more than I can handle. That's not what this verse says. You can't handle that. That's the point. God is faithful. You are going to run a temptation, but God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Notice the verse continues on. But. The word but means the opposite of. Alright. He's not going to give you more than you can handle. But. That means he did give you the more you can handle. But guess what. Will with the temptation also make a way of escape. That you may be able to bear it. What is the way of escape? Jesus I need you. I need your help. God I can't handle this. Do you know where people get in trouble at? When they think they can handle it. When they think they can do it themselves. Listen, I've got enough willpower not to watch pornography. You go ask some drunkard, do you have enough willpower to quit? I can quit whenever you want, whenever I want. We've all heard that before. They do not have the strength. Ask some drug addict, hey, can you quit whenever you want? Oh yeah, I've got this. No, you don't. You can't handle it. That's the whole point. And it is wrong for us to fall into this trap, this misteaching, that you can handle temptation by yourself. You can not. God has left a way of escape. If you start thinking about adultery, 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 and mull it over in your mind, it's going to weaken your flesh, not make you more resolved. It's going to weaken it. You can't handle it. You can't handle it. You can't handle it. That is the whole point. That's why temptation is so dangerous. Because we get to the place. I can, I can mess with it. I can toe the line. I could be close. I'll be fine. You can't handle it. And the problem is. We all think that we can. As soon as you recognize temptation for what it is. Ask God to help. You know why we don't ask God for help? Because we don't want to get rid of the temptation. Paul Swinky has a message that says, I love sin. The only reason why we sin is because we like it. You wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun. You wouldn't sin if it's not something you wanted to do. That's the whole problem. We like sin. You are not strong enough to face it down yourself. The moment you run into it, if you want to be doubly dug sure that you're safe, God, I need help. Lord, my mind is not thinking right. I need help. Lord, I'm tempted. I need help. Lord, I desire this. I need help. Be honest with Him. I, Lord, I'm going to mess up. This is what I want. I need help. Ask God for help. Go to God quickly and ask Him to help. You are too weak to handle it yourself. You ask everyone, including D- David. David, can you handle it? Absolutely, I got this. I could sleep with Bathsheba. Nothing will happen. It's going to be fine. Oh, well, Uriah, I had to kill him. It's fine, it's fine. I got this handled. He thought he had it handled this whole time. And he's so miserable, he could not handle it. It was too much for him. And there was bad consequences. Ask God help. As we go to the next practical thing, quote scripture. Now this is part of that preventative maintenance. If you haven't memorized scripture, what are you going to quote? Turn with me to the gospel record of Matthew and let's look and see how Jesus himself handled temptation. In the gospel record of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus before he starts his public ministry, he starts his public ministry with the baptism, public baptism. A profession 
that he was going to follow after the Lord out loud publicly. And then before he actually preaches his first message in his public ministry, he now has to endure temptation. And so he goes out in the wilderness for 40 days with nothing to eat. Now some of you could barely handle four hours without something to eat. Jesus has been out there for 40 days. And now Satan comes when he is weak. Now notice, it wasn't when he was strong, when he just got out of church. He's been all alone, alone for 40 days. He is tired. He hasn't had a hotel room. He hasn't had his bed. He's been out in the wilderness for 40 days. He's hot, wearied. He's hungry. All of that makes your flesh very weak and very susceptible to temptation. And so Jesus, who is 100% God and 100% man, who's been in all points tempted as we were, was tempted when his flesh was the weakest. How did he handle? Did he buck up and say, listen here, I've got this. How did Jesus handle temptation? The gospel record of Matthew chapter number 4. Notice with me in verse 4. But he answered and said, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Satan tempted him again. Verse number 7. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan tempted him again. And then verse number 10. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thou God, thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. What did Jesus do? To withstand temptation, he quoted scripture. Now, may I just ask you a facetious question? Are you better than Jesus? Then how come you're not quoting scripture when you get into the place of temptation? If Jesus quoted scripture to help him with temptation, we doubly, triply need to be quoting scripture because we cannot handle it ourselves. You know, it is very hard to go commit adultery when you're saying John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is very hard to go commit an act of sin when you're saying for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You understand quoting scripture is a good way to put a hard stop to you following after that sin. This is why that part of that preventative maintenance is there. If you don't know any scripture, how are you going to quote it? You're not going to say, time out, devil. Let me go look at my Bible. If you're staring at a computer screen and you are tempted to go to that website, you're not going to say, pause, let me go pull out my Bible. Amen. That's not the time you're going to pull it out. Quoting scripture is what you're going to need to have. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now again, this is practical stuff. This is necessary stuff. What else can we do? Now again, you think David would have been changed if he decided he was going to quote Psalm 23 right before he was walking to Bathsheba's house or bringing Bathsheba over, staring at her, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It would change a lot of things. He would probably like, I'm sorry, you know, I, I shouldn't have had you come over. What else? Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Hosea. Hosea is in the Minor Prophets. If you're in Matthew, just turn over 12 books, 12 small books, and turn with me to the book of Hosea, chapter number 2. Hosea, chapter number 2. If you're not familiar with the Minor Prophet of Hosea, may I say that this is very critical reading? The prophet Hosea has a wife who has cheated on him. Which is going to be a picture of how Israel cheats on and commits adultery with God. But Hosea has a wife that cheats on him. And he's devastated, but he still loves her. And he does everything he can. He still supplies for her. He brings supplies over to the man's house where she's staying at. Because he doesn't want her to starve. But notice with me his prayer in Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, and notice with me verse 6. Therefore, behold, 
I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. Now this is the prayer that he has. He's saying, God, put a hedge around her. Put a thing, a hedge of thorns around her so she can't go any further. So she can't go past that. What, what is the principle here? Recognize barriers that God placed between you and sin. God is a good God. So often to get to sin, we have to jump over barriers to get to it. If you remember this morning, I made a big deal when David asked about who Bathsheba was. The servant asked David in a form of a question. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba the wife of one of your mighty men? Isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of one of your mighty men? Isn't this Bathsheba the granddaughter of your advisor? You know what all that was? Barriers. God putting up flags saying, don't do this. And in order to get to Bathsheba, David had to jump over those barriers, climb over those barriers to get to sin. One of the things we often don't recognize is this principle that God puts up barriers to keep us from sin. And we so often will jump those hurdles just to get to that sin. And God has done everything he can to keep us from that sin. Barriers are a good thing. And by the way, if you're struggling with sins, put barriers up. Put more barriers up. Do something. But God has put barriers up. And this is a very practical thing. Recognize those obstacles. For example, preventative maintenance. I put up blocks on my computer. But I want to get to that sin. So I'm going to get around those blocks. You know that takes a moment to do? That, that's a willful choice. I need to get rid of this barrier to get to my sin. That happens. Those barriers are a good thing. Recognize those barriers. If you haven't screamed for help from God by now, now's the time to do it. God's put up a stop sign in your way and you have to choose to go around that stop sign or say, God, Lord, I've gone too far. I need help. I, I'm, I'm stuck. Lord, please help, help, help. But recognize those barriers that God has placed between you and sin. David would have been better served if he would have paid attention to those barriers that were thrown up. Another practical thing is remember sin is a conscious choice if you're saved. Remember sin is a conscious choice if you're saved. Meaning that you've come to the place where you recognize that you were a sinner and because of your sin that you've owed God an awful price called hell. But you re realize that Jesus paid your price and you willingly accepted Christ as your Savior. Then you're saved. Once you're saved, you're freed from the power of sin. Meaning that you no longer have to sin. Notice if you don't mind what the Bible says in the book of 1 John chapter number 4. 1 John chapter number 4. Sin is a conscious choice when we are saved. This is a big deal. It means the devil didn't make you do it. Amen. You chose to do this. This is a big deal. Notice with me 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Notice with me in verse 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus has given us liberty, freedom from sin. We no longer have to sin. Sometimes we don't realize how awful sin really is. That when you willfully choose to sin... It's just like going to the foot of the cross. Seeing Jesus dying for our sins. The blood pouring out of his body. And into the soil underneath the cross. And to sin against him once we're saved is just like going down. Scooping up 
a bunch of that mud that is now made from the dirt and the blood. And slapping Jesus across the face. Said, you won't tell me what to do. That is how insulting sinning as a Christian is to Jesus. He died to forgive us of our sins. He died so we wouldn't have sin having dominion and power over us. And we made a choice. I don't care. I'm going to sin anyways. You understand it is a very dangerous, hurtful, insulting thing to sin purposely as a Christian. Because we don't have to sin. And he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to free us from the power of sin. It is a very big deal that realize that when you sin and you decide that you're going to go ahead and engage in drugs, you're going to engage in immorality, you're going to engage in whatever sin that is, that you're doing it out of your own free will against everything that God has given you to do and begged you not to do. And you did it anyways. What's another practical thing that we can do? Well, if you're in the book of John, turn with me to the book of James. First John, turning the other direction. Second Peter, first Peter, James. James chapter 5. As your flesh becomes weaker, you have a harder time looking towards God in temptation. There is another practical solution. That's to go grab a friend. Get someone involved. Here we have the principle, get accountability quickly. Get accountability immediately. The Bible says in James chapter 5 and verse 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know there's something to accountability. Having an accountability partner is one of the vital things to help you. Now we know God is always on call and he's the one you should run to. But you need to have someone that you keep accountable to if you're struggling with sin. There's a bunch of pastor friends of mine that we'll call each other up and in the midst of the call we'll ask, how's your thought life? Why? Because we care enough for each other to guard each other. How's your thought life? Is your thinking alright? Are you struggling with something? And to have someone to be honest with that you could say, hey man, I am struggling. It's not an idea that we're trying to say, oh yeah, I'm spiritual, I got this. It's every indication that said, hey man, I am struggling today. You called me at the right time, I need help. By the way, that's pastors. Everyone needs accountability. You need someone that you can go up to who will love you enough to say, hey, uh, let me help. Thank you for telling me. And not look down on you, but say, let's help you through this. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Ye that are spiritual, restore such a one. That's our job as Christians is to help someone who's struggling. Not to kick dirt on them or to kick them when they're down or elbow drop them. We're to help them. Because we're struggle too, by the way. Everyone struggles. Temptation is something common to everyone. Having an accountability partner is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of great humility and strength. It's recognizing, listen, I can't do it on myself and I need help. By the way, that's one of the reasons why you have a pastor and a pastor's wife. People that love you that would be glad to say, let me help you. This is why we have set up in our church discipleship. That the disciplee should be able to rely on the discipler and say, hey man, I've been struggling with this. There's no thing saying that you have to be a super Christian. But you're not in it alone and we're glad to help. It's part of having a church family. Having someone that you trust to say, look, I'm struggling with this. Listen, if somebody came up tonight and said, I'm struggling with pornography, we're not going to look down on them. You know what we do? Thank you for your honesty. Let's help. 
That's the way that we should respond. Let's set something in order. Let's put it there. By the way, we talk about some of these gross sins. You know there's other things in our life that you struggle with? Maybe you have the idea that I need to work out more. Accountability. You know that we're supposed to keep our... I know preaching... We're supposed to keep our bodies under subjection. There should be an idea that, hey, listen, I have a hard time. I know I should work out, but I don't want to. Sometimes having that accountability. That's why we have discipleship set up. <laughs> there are times I don't want to read my Bible. And someone's honest. You have someone that says, is going to check up on you that will help you read your Bible. Hey, you know what? I know that you don't feel like reading it. Maybe we could read it together. Hey, maybe I could call you tomorrow and see how it's doing. There should be an accountability. Accountability is not weakness. It is great strength. It's recognizing that, listen, I can't do it on my own and I'm foolish to try. Someone cares enough for me to check up on me. Maybe it's the idea that, hey, I'm addicted to chocolate. It's not necessarily a sin, but man, it's not what I should be doing. Hey, have, have accountability. Someone help you out. Hey, you know what? I'm having a problem going out to eat all the time and I know I shouldn't. My budget doesn't allow it, but I just can't stop myself. Accountability. You understand we're covering more than just gross sins. It's not a weakness to say, hey, or not weak to say, listen, I struggle with my finances. Amazon is not my friend. I'm struggling. Can you help me? There, we want to have the best life possible. And there are certain things that can destroy us if we let it get out of control. Maybe there's some things that we shouldn't even let get that bad. Ask for help. Help us along. These are practical things. If you go look, you'll see almost all of these points were available for David. Every single one of them. And every single one of them could have helped stop this tragedy from occurring. Because it was a tragedy. You understand how many people died because of one night in sin. One night in sin, Uriah died. One night in sin, this baby died. One night in sin, a young lady was raped. One night in sin, a brother died. One night in sin, a rebellion swept across the nation. One night in sin, another son dead. One night in sin, had another brother decide he was going to raise up and try to take the kingdom from another. And he was killed. One night in sin. One night in sin, the enemies of God blasphemed. I thought this was the man after God's own heart. Oh, God's not that good after all. Look at what God has in place. Oh, I thought they were a believer. That's not how a believer should behave. One night in sin. One day, one time, one moment of weakness that he let his flesh win. And it devastated everything. That lust, once it is conceived, turns to sin. And sin, when it is finished, turns to death. Sin will always cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And take you a lot further than you ever wanted to go. But God has always made a way of escape. And there's some preventative maintenance. There's understanding what temptation is. There's the idea of asking God for help. There's quoting scriptures when you're in that thing. Recognizing the barriers that God has placed in your life. Remembering that sin is a conscious choice that I don't have to do this. I don't have to take this step. And then just getting accountability. Having someone that loves you enough that will help you through this. These are practical things that we as Christians need. And if we want to live the life that is pleasing to the Lord. We want to live a life that has a life of victory and not destruction. These are things that we need to put into place in our own lives. Maybe you are struggling with something. Maybe it's not gross sin. Maybe it is. Maybe it's just a small thing, but you know that you've been struggling with it. 
Maybe the first thing you need to do is recognize for what it is and come to an old-fashioned altar and say, help God help. Maybe perhaps you need to take a step further than that and come up with a game plan. Maybe you need to find an accountability partner. In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation, but I want to do something different. Maybe you are struggling with someone, something, not someone, Maybe you want to grab someone to pray with you. And just be honest. Listen, every single one of us struggle with something. There's not a sinless person in here, including this guy. Let's have a place that if you're struggling with something, grab someone and bring them to the altar and say, can you pray with me? And maybe they have something that you could pray for them on. Let's bear one another's burdens. You're not in it alone, so stop trying. Let's get the help that we need so we can have the life that we should live. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.